All right. Good morning to you. This is Mike Smith. We've got a great Friday morning show for you today, highlighted by my first guest today. I want to get right to her, Dr. Bonnie Henry, BC's Provincial Health Officer, leading us through the COVID-19 pandemic. Dr. Henry, welcome and thank you for being here. You're very welcome. Good morning. Good morning to you. Thank you for everything you've done and everything you continue to do. It's been amazing. And this week in particular has been a big week in the fight against this virus. And we saw yesterday the rollout of this Restart BC plan to relax some of these pandemic restrictions. Let me let me just start there. I'm, I'm just wondering about your degree of, of comfort for this plan, reopening places like dentist offices and salons, barbershops, massage therapy, child care centers starting as early as mid-May. Do you have any do you have any thoughts or concerns or worries in the back of your mind about that? You know, this has been a learning experience for all of us in the last number of months. So, of course, everything is new and uh, challenging, and um, I have concerns about all of it. But I do think we are at the point. Uh, we're not quite there yet, and I will remind people that we need to continue doing what we've been doing for the, the next week at least so that we can make sure that we're in a good place. Um, when we when we get to the you know the middle of May the 18th 19th, right. and, and I also want to say that you know this is not we're not ordering people to open. What we're saying is now we can um, put in place the restrictions that we need to make sure that all of this can be done safely. And I've put out in the last couple of weeks to the different sectors, you know, how can you do this given these ground rules, you know, that we still need to have our safe distancing. We need to make sure that we are absolutely staying away from others if we're sick at all right now. Um, The hand cleaning, the making sure that we're in smaller groups smaller numbers, not increasing our contact too much. And, and, you know, that's what we need to think through in the coming weeks. And and I know I've been, uh, I've had lots of people that have had great ideas about how they can do it safely for their business, but it's going to be different for everybody, for every family and for every business. And we're going to have to get through this together and work it out. Right. Speaking of those restrictions around businesses reopening, how is that going to work? I mean, will businesses have to get approval from an authority to reopen? Will they have to display a certificate in their window or something? Who who is who decides which gets what gets to reopen and when? Right. So what we've been working on through WorkSafe BC and public health, we've been working on templates for different sectors and uh, going back and forth with uh, some of the associations for the different sectors. So what we'll will have, and there's some uh, already, but WorkSafe BC will be the point, um, and they'll be putting up templates and checklists that uh, different sectors can use. So if I'm a, a retail store, for example, um, we have some already that have been used for uh, grocery stores in the past little while, um, things around barriers and reducing number of people and making sure that we can do it in a safe way. And the expectation we have, not that we will have to approve everyone, because that, that would just be impossible. But what we want is um, for us to make a public commitment about how we're doing it. So we want uh, every um, business that's opening to post their plan publicly so their employees know exactly what uh, measures have been put in place and so the public knows. And then we can all be assured that things are going to be uh, done in a way that's safe for all of us. So that can either be by posting your plan on your window. We've seen some of that already with uh, restaurants that have been doing takeout. Or you can um, post it on the Internet and have some combination of uh, 
uh, you know, a lot of businesses are doing um, online and in-person, mm-hmm. non-contact retail right now. So those are the types of things we'll see. And then WorkSafe BC will be uh, doing um, priority um, inspections on some of these to make sure that the, that they're up to, to scratch. And uh, if there's a concerns that employees have, they can contact WorkSafe BC. If there's concerns the public has, they can contact us in public health. Okay, there's a lot of specific businesses mentioned in the plan this week, but there there are a few omissions as well. And I've, I've heard from several people asking, what about gyms, for example, and, and rec centers? Will they be allowed to open this month, gyms? Yeah, so it's a little bit, that one's a bit of a tricky one because uh, they were never ordered to be closed directly. Most of them did close because they were not able to comply with the the requirements that we needed about, uh, um, you know, numbers of people and the cleaning and and in some parts of the province, particularly in the Fraser Health region and interior, there had been clusters of cases associated with people going to the gym. So we knew it was an area where things were transmitted. So there are orders um, from the local MHOs in place in a couple parts of the province. So what I'm looking to see is that uh, um, certain gyms may be able to open um, if they meet the requirements that we have around personal distancing, around making sure that there's appropriate hygiene so that we're not creating an environment um, that allows for transmission of this virus. And I I expect that will take some time and that I would expect that most of these, it will be later in the month or into June before they have a, uh, before we have an appropriate plan. And I think that's, that's reasonable. Um, you know, right now we still have this virus circulating. I'm hoping with all the measures that we're putting in place that we can keep it down even lower and we can get to uh, a place where we'll be more comfortable going to a place like a gym. Speaking to Provincial Health Officer Dr. Bonnie Henry, what do you say to the the argument, and I get emails like this, I'm sure you do, that the cure is worse than the disease, that if we take a look at the extraordinary measures we've all gone through to fight this virus and the economic damage that it's caused, we just saw some extraordinary unemployment statistics announced for the country today with millions of people who have lost their jobs. We're in a terrible, terrible recession. What do you say to people to, to assure them that it's all been worth it? Oh, you know, and this is obviously something that we deal with every day. And um, I, I just can't, you know, the, the challenge is that we have no control over certain things. And it's this virus that causes this. It's like a natural disaster. And it's not just us in here, here in B.C. It's around the world. We are seeing this impacting every economy, every place in the world. So what we're trying to do is minimize the the the, um, the tragic effects of the virus, so that we can get our economy back going. But you can't do one without the other. We need to control this virus to be able to get things going. And we've been, um, you know, thankfully the people in BC have responded, and we've been able to control this so that we have not had um, the degree of impact on our healthcare system and the numbers of people getting very sick and dying that we've seen in other parts of this country. So that's why we need to be so cautious in how we're reopening because the the unknown factor that we're all dealing with and we're all trying to control together is this virus. Let me ask you about expanding our social circles, and you've touched on this in the last few days. Uh, did you call it double the bubble? Is that what we're hoping to do, <laughs> that you we widen our circle of uh, contacts, double the bubble? Mm-hmm. 
you know, we talk about the, the, the consequences and the impacts that we've had of the measures that we've taken on people and, and no more of those are the social impacts that we've had from, from being um, restricted to our own household, our own um, small family unit. Um, for some people, that might be quite a large family. But I believe that we are at a point where we can increase our social contact and we can hug more people in our, in our close circle of, of family and friends. But we need to do it cautiously, and we need to be aware as well that um, that you know if people are are um, at risk of having severe illness from this, we we need to continue to protect them. So if somebody in my family right. is going through cancer treatment, if we have elderly people in our family who are have underlying health illnesses, we need to be very careful about how much we expand our our social contacts. And how does that work on a on a practical level? Like let's say. A typical family of four people, maybe they've been staying at home, like they've been told, minimizing their contacts and maybe just their own immediate family. When you talk about widening that bubble, how many people could we, let's say a family of four, how many more people could you have contact with here in the coming days? Yeah, you know, that that really depends. So what we're talking about, um, pick if you have other family that are in, in town and you want to be with the grandparents, then, then expand your circle to include your grandparents or maybe your brother and sister. Or if you're a family that has uh, doesn't have other family in town but have a good friend, expand your circle. But make sure that you're their family as well, right? So your circles are overlapping. The whole idea is that if we have contact, close contact, so these are the people that we're going to be hugging and, and actually being together with. Um, those people, we, we, we are, are at risk of everybody they've been in contact with. But, right. So let's be our, each other's families in, in a limited way. And then when we're talking about going out and having more um, safe connections in the community, those are the ones where we want to keep our distance and have the small numbers. So if we get together with some of our neighbors, maybe um, we can maintain our distances, um, make sure that it's it's small numbers and that right. we're not um, giving this virus an opportunity to really spread quickly. Can, can, can people safely, let, let's say they expand their bubble to include their grandparents, like, like you mentioned, it's Mother's Day this Sunday, maybe they'd want to they hug their mom and visit their mother. Um, is that the extent of the bubble then at that point? You can't, you can't see anyone else or could you see a different group of people the following weekend? Yeah, so it is more the former. If you want to expand to include your mom and that household, then, then you know what? You get, need to be with each other. Um, because if you start having multiple close contacts with other people, that's how we get the virus to spread again. So, yeah, you, you need to pick your, your, we need to do more than we have right now, but not where we were before, where we have lots of different contacts with lots of different people. I, I spoke yesterday, on yesterday's show to officials from the BC tourism sector, who, and, and the sector has been devastated. It's absolutely mm-hmm. massive industry in our, in our province. Um, when you take a look at the international travel restrictions still in place and the borders shut down, could that potentially stretch into well into next year and beyond? I mean, how, what is your hope on when those travel restrictions could be lifted and the border could be opened? Yeah. You know what? I think this is going to be a very challenging year for tourism, and, and we need to focus on staying close to home here in BC and across Canada. And really, it's you know, it's not it's not my restrictions that are put, putting the the border restrictions in place. It's really what's going on around the world. We know that uh, the airline industry um, is, has cut back 
um, that we know there's still huge um, issues with this virus in, in Europe, and we're now seeing it in India and other places. So, um, and the United States, of course, is still going through a lot of uh, severe uh, outbreaks in some parts of the country. So it's going to be a challenging year for all of us. I think we need to really focus on our staycations, on appreciating what we have here in BC, and taking and you know trying to support our local uh, tourism industries here in British Columbia. Thank you for coming on, and thank you for everything you're doing. I appreciate it. All right, thank you. All right, welcome back. Let's talk about whether the BC school year will get back up and running and what will schools like in the fall. Now, have a listen to this. Here is Premier John Horgan uh, talking about back to school. We'll also be expanding access to childcare and in-class learning for K-12 students. We understand that parents have questions about the safety of their children as they return to school, and it's okay for parents to be concerned. But I want to read that many schools are already operating safely within class learning for the kids of essential workers. And we're not going to be forcing anyone to come back, but Minister Fleming and I will be working to make sure students whose families need to have kids in class will have that opportunity. All right, it's Premier John Horgan talking about back to school. You heard him mention uh, Minister Fleming there. It'll be Minister, uh, Education Minister Rob Fleming, of course, and he joins me now. Minister, thank you for your time. Thanks for having me, Mike. Okay, let's talk about how this is going to work. So some kids are already back in school. We, we There is some in-class learning going on. Is that going to expand? How is this going to work now? Yeah, uh, what, the, what the Premier outlined in the restart plan is uh, that we have five stages uh, during the COVID pandemic around safe operation of schools. Uh, you'll recall March 17th, we were in stage five, which basically the schools were shut down. They were closed anyway for spring break. And in the, in the weeks following spring break, we moved to what's called stage four, where you correctly identified that we have uh, about 5,000 kids in our schools right now uh, who are the children of essential service workers, frontline workers in the healthcare system, emergency responders. Uh, it's even expanded to all of the occupations that are listed in the Emergency Management Act, um, so uh, retail and grocery workers. Uh, and also uh, vulnerable students, those who need uh, one-on-one time uh, uh, as part of their individual education plan to work with specialists who have uh, different learning needs. Okay, and and we that? hope to move... Yeah. Hmm. Go ahead. Well, I was going to say what we hope to do uh, at some point with the remainder of the school year is move to stage three, where we focus on K-5 to kids who are you know, there's a lot of growing learning inequities and learning loss. Um, get them back into school part-time, reduce numbers. You heard uh, Dr. Henry outline uh, some of the strict health and safety protocols that will guide that. Uh, reduce density of kids uh, in schools for sure. It's optional for parents. I do want to stress that. But to have some in-class instruction uh, for uh, the general population of kids uh, by the end of the school year, setting us up for a much stronger start in September, where we hope to be at what's called stage one, where we resume uh, school operation for all kids, again, under very strict health and safety protocols. With that, that call we made, of course, around August. Uh, we're waiting for the green light on uh, a stage three and a lot of intense planning going on with all of the stakeholders in the education system, with WorkSafe BC, with the provincial health officer, about uh, some return to uh, part-time instruction, focusing on K-5s, 
but also for the grade six to 12s, uh, an even more part-time schedule where a, a day of in-class instruction supplemented by the online learning programs that have been established uh, since this pandemic started. Okay, I'm trying to imagine how social distancing is going to be achieved in a school and once you get kids back in there, especially with younger kids who have no idea what you're talking about, you tell them not to <laughs> you tell them to social distance, maybe like herding cats. Um, like is this possible? How do you achieve social distancing in a in a crowded school? Well, the first is to not make them crowded schools. Uh, the second is to um, explain it as, you know, no physical contact. That's something that the kids can understand. Uh, and, uh, you know, to organize the school in such a way that, uh, you know, you have both physical and time distancing, you know, staggered recesses, uh, limited small groups of, uh, of kids in any one area at any one time. Uh, those are some of the things that um, are contemplated. Districts are looking at the layout of their schools right now. Um, you know, even figuring things out like hallway flow and how to reduce that, you know, keeping kids in one room in one area of, of the school is is a good practice. The, the main thing, too, really is around keeping surfaces clean, having a very thorough uh, hygiene regime, uh, frequent hand washing, uh, lots of uh, hand sanitizer, those sorts of things. Will there be a, a mask requirement? Are we going to see teachers wearing masks at, at, at work? They certainly can if they wish. Uh, it won't be a requirement. Um, districts are working with individual teachers associations on those sorts of things. Uh, you know, we're working on it at a provincial level with uh, WorkSafe BC, as I mentioned, and uh, the provincial health officer. Uh, same goes for kids. Uh, certainly can wear masks uh, if they wish. Um, I don't think you're going to see anything like, you know, contact sports and, you know, kids uh, engaged in vigorous physical education. Might not be possible to have uh, music classes uh, either where, you know, you have instruments being blown and and, uh, and those sorts of things at this point in time, they'll have to do music, yeah. music differently and maybe digital formats, those sorts of things. What, what do you say to a parent out there or maybe a teacher out there who is nervous about going back into a classroom? I've already heard from uh, parents who've got underlying health conditions. Maybe they've got some compromised immunity. Mm -hmm not too thrilled about the idea of their children going back to school. I had a phone call in the open line here on the show a couple of days ago from from a guy whose wife is a teacher. He's worried about her. He doesn't want her to go back to work. What do you say to people who don't want to go back to the schools? Well, I would say two things. First of all, if there's a teacher or a child who has an immuno, immunocompromised uh, underlying health condition, they should not come back to school. The other thing that has been very clearly said by Minister Dix and Bonnie Henry is that if you are showing any symptoms of, of anything, coughing, sneezing, uh, you do not come to school. You do not uh, go to work if you're a staff member in the school. Uh, that is uh, very strictly enforced. Um, and, you know, it, it's a choice for parents. I, I understand the anxiety. I, I know that a lot of parents have really been struggling uh, to keep their kids on-track learning at home, uh, distance learning, the remote learning that we've set up. You know, we've got to get better at it because uh, we might have to go back to it um, depending on what a second wave looks like next winter. Uh, we've, got to, we've got to prepare to have, you know, the, the stages document we've laid out and the health and safety protocols that accompanies each one is designed to get us through the duration of this pandemic until we get a vaccine. And we'll be in different stages, undoubtedly, at different times. And We've always said, uh, uh, right when we closed uh, schools to in-class instruction, 
and every daily update since the, the science and the data have to govern uh, what we do as a society, what kind of commercial and business activities we have. We've had a, a very good result in British Columbia, which allows us to contemplate a safe return to school, schools, and, and that's what the experts are working on right now. Can you uh, guarantee to parents out there that their kids are actually going to receive a, a complete curriculum education here? Because it just seems very haphazard, school to school, mm-hmm. district to district, about exactly what kind of education kids are getting online. It almost seems to come down to an individual teacher and a teacher's mm-hmm. ability to deliver some of this stuff online. Like, what are kids actually learning? Are they learning the curriculum right now? Yeah, they are. Um, I think what we're going to be very busy on uh, in the summer, too, is, is looking at all of the excellence that's been discovered in, in teaching in a, in a non-ideal uh, delivery model for education so that when we, if and when we do get back to uh, uh, remote learning exclusively, uh, you know, we, we want British Columbia to be a leader uh, in terms of uh, how that is uh, uh, standardized and, and, and done well by teachers. We've got lots of technology, lots of apps. There's there's, there's, you know, lots of inspiring reports of innovation coming from teachers. We want to generalize that. Teachers learn from other teachers, so there will be a professional development focus on that. Okay, speaking of Education Minister Rob Fleming, what about someone in grade 12? I got a son in grade 12 mm. who's uh, very disappointed. Yeah. He's, he's missing his commencement ceremony, his prom. Uh, what do you say to those kids? Are they still going to graduate, and is it possible they could have a a celebration next year, uh, maybe delay the delay a prom or a grad ceremony for a year. Oh, I think that would be totally appropriate. Um, and uh, you've got uh, again some districts and individual schools uh, contemplating some pretty neat stuff. It's no substitute for a real grad ceremony where you've got uh, proud parents and you know crowded auditoriums and all that kind of stuff. That's just not possible. Large gatherings are not returning anytime soon. Uh, in BC, but uh, we're also looking at uh, something provincial. I know the premier; uh, he 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 understands and values how important uh, graduation is in a young person's life. It's a major accomplishment, and it's one that deserves to be celebrated. So we'll look at. We've got some we've got some entertainers and others who uh, in British Columbia who who want to help the grad class of 2020 uh, have something memorable, and then and then later on, uh, absolutely. I mean, I think uh, the grad class needs to. Uh, uh, congregate when it's safe to do so when we defeated COVID-19 once and for all, for sure. Yeah, what about, um, there, there's a lot we don't know about this virus and how it spreads, especially among mm-hmm. young people, and if young people can be infected and not and be asymptomatic and, and not show any symptoms at all, how is that going to factor into the plan to reopen schools, especially in the fall, with your, your hope to get back to a, uh, schools fully open again, if we still are concerned about the possibility of spread of this virus through kids in schools yeah i think i think it's it's doing what we're doing now for those five thousand kids that are attending uh, school in bc it's uh, a daily screening protocol of kids and staff coming into the buildings uh it's around uh, a very deep uh, cleaning regime that keeps surfaces high touch surfaces all surfaces uh, clean and sanitized it's about having the right kind of supplies um, there is uh, there is a lot of things that are changing in the schools. Uh, there's no doubt about it. It's 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 not going back to uh, normal how we understood it. Um, before how does, that, how does that daily how does that daily screening work? It's really about uh, uh, kids and parents uh, having to monitor any symptoms at all, um, taking no chances uh, whatsoever, and maintaining uh, physical distance. 
uh, in the classrooms. The classrooms have to be configured. Desks will have to be moved. Those are the instructions that the PHO and the Ministry of Education, working with uh, all 60 districts, uh, have worked out and are continuing to work out with the uh, input and uh, guidance of the BC Teachers Federation and the support staff unions, uh, everybody who's involved in education. Speaking of that cleaning and sanitizing regimen you described there, how are you going to achieve that? Will it be hiring more custodial staff or cleaners in schools? Yeah, a lot of districts uh, have done so or are reassigning staff. I think I think we have to make uh, maintaining cleanliness uh, and, a, and, a, and an environment that uh, is inhospitable to uh, the virus uh, everyone's job, including kids, um, in terms of keeping their desks clean and their spaces clean and um, respecting uh, distances between them and the other students and uh, keeping groups of kids, um, you know, in a, in a, in a circulation that uh, makes sense inside of a school building. You know, lots of schools have multiple uh, entrances and exits, uh, making sure that, uh, you know, everybody's not clustered in one place uh, at all. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me, Mike. All right, welcome back, Mike Smith. Lots going on with these uh, economic and job numbers out today from Statistics Canada. These numbers are brutal. Two million uh, Canadians have lost their job. The unemployment rate, 13%. Really, really bad numbers in British Columbia, too. Hundreds of thousands of people out of work. The employment unemployment rate in BC, just a touch lower than the national average, but as fi- BC Finance Minister Carol James here to call it this morning, devastating. Uh, the numbers out from Statistics Canada also devastating as well. My guest is Toronto Sun political columnist Brian Lilly. Hey, Brian, thanks for coming on. Uh, thank you for having me. Yeah, B- BC is uh, sitting at about 11.5% unemployment rate. Yeah. Uh, Vancouver, 108 uh, Nationally, it's 13 But But strangely, Mike, even StatsCan says... If they counted it a bit differently, it would actually be 17.8%. The reason I say that is that if you are um, not looking for work but able to work, you're not counted as unemployed. And StatsCan says right now there's 1.1 million people who told them, no, I didn't look for work in the last two weeks, but I would have if it wasn't for the pandemic. Yeah. So StatsCan says, well, we can't count them as unemployed because this is how we always count the unemployment rate. Right. But if we did count them, it wouldn't be 13%. It'd be 17.8. And then you realize that uh, they stopped counting the numbers two weeks ago and all the changes since then. We're probably looking at a real unemployment rate of north of 20% across the country. Wow. And that's, um, you know, it, Quebec, my goodness, they're the highest in the the country right now, I believe, they're above Newfoundland. Yeah, I mean, those are the numbers I think to really concentrate on because we've talked before about the invisible unemployed people who have just sort of given up looking for work. But I think there's a lot of people out there who may not be technically in the job market or looking for looking for a job, but it's only because, not because they've given up because they don't want to work. It's because they just realize there's, there's not a job to be had. And those yeah, people should man. probably be counted in this unemployment rate. My uh, my brother used to sail out of Vancouver in Victoria quite often. He worked on cruise ships for years, decided he was going to switch careers, came back just before COVID hit, and, um, you know, he had, he had enough savings that he's like, okay, I'm going to take a month or so, and then I'm going to start looking. And he started looking just as COVID hit. There's not really, a, you know, he can go and work in, in a retail store if he wants to or needs to, but, you know, he was looking for a different type of job. 
he would not be included in the current unemployment numbers. He'd be one of those 1.1 million. Uh, how many uh, people that were self-employed aren't yeah. being counted? They do count self-employed to a degree. I, it, I would give them that. It's worse. But, it's worse than what they're saying. I, I think. What about the they, response? And they admit that. Yeah. What, what about the response of the, the Trudeau government here? I know you've been following very closely the assistance packages that the Justin Trudeau government has rolled out here. Uh, Trudeau, again, um, announcing more measures today, extending that emergency wage subsidy beyond uh, the month of June here to try and encourage more employers to hire staff. Um, y- your thoughts on, on how Trudeau is doing and, and whether these measures are effective and if they're targeting the people who need the most help? It's what about agriculture, bag. man? The, the, the agriculture sector didn't get enough, did they? Well, you know, today they announced $500 million for sports and culture. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and is someone that you know used to work in theater, um, who's done arts uh, marketing, you know, in a previous life. I, I get the importance of arts and culture. And you look at all the festivals canceled. It's incredibly important to our economy. But that's more than double what they offered for the entire agri-food and agriculture system. And a good chunk of that, of the, the $252 million that they offered up for agriculture, went to um, uh, dairy farmers who are part of uh, essentially a government program that keeps their incomes high already. So, you know, it's not going to the farmers that are having to take a bit more of a risk. The odd thing about all of the uh, assistance that the Trudeau government has been giving out is that it's focused on individuals. If you look at when they talk about the wage subsidy, um, they uh, they offered that to business, but there were very, you know, lots of stern warnings. Oh, businesses, you better not uh, uh, you better not cheat this, and there's going to be cheating, and we're going to have harsh penalties. And then when it comes to things like the emergency response benefit, they know that there are people getting EI and the CERB at the same time. And they're saying, no, don't worry about it. We'll figure it out later. In some ways, they're trying to shower money on people as quickly as they can. And that can be a laudable goal in a time like this. But I also get the feeling that, to a degree, they're using this uh, as vote buying. You know, everyone from Tom Mulcair to John Iveson to... Lots of people in Ottawa right now are saying they're looking like they're setting up for an election. An election. And yeah. how do you win an election? Yeah. You give money to voters. <laughs> I, I don't want to see the government try and get reelected by putting money into the hands of voters. Okay, I, I think that there are political strategists in the back rooms here closely looking at polls. They're closely looking at an elector, election timetable. I agree with you. Hey, Brian, let me let me ask you about this one because I think this is super political as well. When you take a look at Justin Trudeau's gun ban, okay, so the ban on military-style assault weapons, as the government calls them, rolled out in the last couple of weeks here, I think that's very political. And I, I spoke to Aaron O'Toole on the show a couple of days ago, running the conservative MP, running for the leadership of the conservative party. I think he's probably going to win the leadership just because McKay's been so terrible. But he says that he is, he is great on the gun ban. Because he's a military guy himself who is trained on what is a real military assault weapon, which is a fully automatic like machine gun. And those are already prohibited in Canada. What Trudeau is banning here are scary looking guns like the AR-15, which is a scary looking weapon, but it's still a semi-automatic rifle 
that will take a maximum of five bullets in a in a in a clip. That's what he's banning. And the conservatives are good at criticizing this and pointing out the hypocrisy of it. But here's where I get to the politics of it. I think this is a trap that Trudeau has laid for the conservatives here, and they're walking right into it. Because I asked, I asked uh, O'Toole the other day, what would you, and we got the sound clip here, Tim, if we could just play this. This is Aaron O'Toole, so he's running for the conservative leadership. I asked him, what would he do about Trudeau's gun ban? And here's what he told me. I would reverse what Trudeau has done. And what I will do, uh, Mike, specifically, is I will open up and, and show Canadians, first and foremost, we, we will redraft our firearms legislation so people can be crystal clear about what is permitted in Canada, what is not. I want Canadians to know that we have a, a system that's very different from the U.S. That Justin Trudeau is hoping people make their decisions for these polling questions based solely on emotion. That's why he rushed this through. Even their documents were just click and paste from Google. They were giving to MPs midway through our briefing. Okay, Aaron O'Toole, he may be the next conservative leader. Brian, what do you think of this? Because I think that I think what he said there, saying that we'll reverse this, we'll reverse this gun ban, I think that's exactly what the Liberals want him to say. And they're thinking about the politics of this. They think this is going to get him a lot of votes in another election. Your thoughts? It'll get them a lot of votes in Vancouver and in Toronto and uh, among suburban mothers. Um, but, uh, look, he, here's where their argument falls apart. This will not do anything to stop gun crime. Uh, they are using emotional words, no doubt. That's why they're saying military-grade assault weapons. Uh, Aaron O'Toole is a couple years younger than me. We both served in the military, him far longer than me. But I trained on a, an FNC-1A1. That's the old NATO rifle all through the Cold War. Uh, it's on the list as banned. It was never available for civilian purchase, uh, well, at least not in decades. The C-7, which uh, yeah. I took the training course in 1990 uh, to move from the FN to the C- C-7, it's on the, the list of, oh, look, we're banning this military rifle. Well, you couldn't buy it as a civilian it already, anyway. It was already prohibited. So the, yeah. the rifles that they're banning are that. They're rifles, uh, and they're limited. If you're following the law, they're limited to five shots. Bill Blair right. is out there on CTV uh, question period or wh- whatever show is on in the afternoon saying, oh, well, this, uh, these things are rapid fire sustained action. Uh, no, they're not. It's yeah. five rounds. That's all you're, if you're following the law, that's all that's allowed. And who are they taking the guns away from? Not the criminals, but the people who are obeying the law. Now, this is where the conservatives could make headway with the public. Everyone's concerned about gun crime, whether yeah. you're in Vancouver in, in the Van- greater Vancouver area or in Toronto or in Ottawa or in Montreal, even in small towns, they're worried about it because the fentanyl crisis has spread this everywhere. What you have to do is point out that they are spending more than twice as much money to buy back guns that were not used in crimes than they are to fight guns used in crimes. Yeah, yeah. $600 million, and, and that's the low end. You know it's going to hit a billion. But yet they, that's what they're going to pay for this so-called gun buyback to buy firearms they never own, so it's not really a buyback. Uh, they're going to spend 600 to a billion on that, $327 million to fight gun crime by giving money to provinces, municipalities. Right. A, only 86 million of that is going to the border 
which is the number one source. I, I think you, you make know. a I think you make a lot of sense. And O'Toole said the same thing to me the other day. And and you know it's tough to argue with that. The, the only thing is though that the politics of this thing I think have been carefully calibrated here by the Liberals. And Trudeau had that line the other day: "You don't need an AR-15 to hunt a deer." And even though it's illegal to hunt a deer with an AR-15 any already anyway, doesn't matter. It's just this line that he's got. You don't need a military assault weapon to hunt a deer. I, unless you're I, a member of a First Nations community, in well, which case he yeah. said you get to keep them so that you can hunt. They're exempted. It, it and, makes zero sense. Yeah, I know. Zero sense. And, 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 and there's also a lot of, there's a, a lot of gun smuggling goes on in some of those reserves in Ontario and Quebec that straddle the border, too. So I, I, I understand that. I'm just talking, the, the politics of this thing, I think, are dangerous for the Conservatives. But here's what I want to do right now, Brian. Take a quick break. Yes, Brian Lilly from the Toronto Sun. Your calls to him, 604-280-9898 is the number. 604-280-9898, star 9898, toll free on your cell. Alex calling in from New West. Hi, Alex. Oh, hey, guys. Uh, I was looking at uh, skimming through the list, and if you actually go halfway down, you'll start seeing mortars, rocket launchers, bazookas, anything that was used in actual military combat. So as the Liberals saying that somehow they banned all that stuff, that on the 30th they could use a bazooka to go hunting? Okay, th- thank you. Thanks for the call. Brian, the, the list of banned weapons that the government brought out was kind of a bit of a Internet cut-and-paste job there, but your thoughts on that? It really was. I mean, you know, there was all this talk of rocket launchers, and, and I talked to some, uh, you know, different firearms and uh, military weaponry experts, and they said, well, actually, those rocket launchers they're mentioning are the tubes that, you know, they don't fire the rockets, but the, the tubes you put in to fire the rockets, and you know, the rest of the uh, operations already banned, so the tube's essentially useless. It'd be like going to a hardware store and getting a tube. It, you know, they're they're trying to pad the resume, I guess you could say, in claiming this fifteen hundred. Um, really, we're talking about uh, uh, hundreds of thousands of rifles that will be taken out of the homes of law-abiding owners, but not that many actual models. Didn't they ban uh, a toy gun on there? Uh, yeah, they banned an airsoft rifle. What's the, what uh, is there that? Was talk that they, they banned a website and a Facebook chat group, but apparently yeah. uh, those two had also registered uh, to uh, to be producers of parts for AR-15s uh, okay. to be made in Canada. So that might be why that happened. Nathan calling in from Ladner. Hi, Nathan. Hi. Uh, I was just, when I've been reading through, it seems like all they've written is just to scare the people who aren't who haven't researched what they what is actually on the list? It's because it makes it look like just because the gun's black and has lots of attachments and stuff like that, it's not yeah. the same gun as my grandpa's thirty out six that has a wood cedar stained wood stock. Yeah, I mean the the guns that they're banning have got features like um, a folding metal stock, uh, a pistol grip handle, um, you know, a short a shorter barrel. Uh, usually so you, you almost, invari- almost invariably that. black, almost invariably sort of flat black in color. So it's a scary-looking weapon, but it functions the same as like a, 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 a other center-fire rifles, right, Brian? Yeah, and you can have yeah. everything that you're talking about. Maybe not the folding stock, but uh, the uh, you can have the exact same gun, uh, but with a wooden stock, and people will just say, oh, that's a hunting rifle, or that's a you know a rifle to go shooting with. Yeah. Uh the reason that they moved from 
walnut and wood like that towards the black composite is, one, it's lighter, easier to carry. Two, it became harder and harder to get the wood for the guns. So they said, well, we can make it from this uh, black composite material. Okay, now people associate that with military rifles, and they're scary. As someone that has fired... Uh, as I said, the FN, the C7, a Thompson submachine gun, and all kinds of things when I was in the military. These are not military-grade assault weapons. Yeah, yeah. Scott in Abbotsford. Hi, Scott. Hey, how you doing, Mike? Thanks for my call. Sure. Hey, um, I just want to say that there is, you can hunt with an AR-style weapon. A friend of mine has, like, a stag. It's a three hundred eight caliber, and it's completely legal for deer. It's... Hmm. I, I don't understand why they say you can't hunt with an AR because it's a 308 caliber. Some come in 223, which I believe is still legal for deer. No, not a lot of people use a 223 for deer, but a 308 is the same as a okay. 300 wind bag. Well, Brian, do you know? Well, I mean, the AR-15 is a restricted weapon, and you can't hunt with a restricted weapon. Isn't that the rule? Yeah. So a, a, a typical AR-15 is a 223 caliber. I don't want to bore people with too much of the weeds, but it's a small. The reason you can't hunt with it isn't that it's big and powerful. It's that it's a a small bullet, yeah. and it, it's more likely to leave the deer wounded for a longer period of time rather than immediately kill it. So most hunters wouldn't hunt uh, deer with an AR-15. If it's 308, that's a much bigger round. And that makes it a, a different rifle. So th- that's the difference. There's only a okay. few states that allow uh, deer hunting with an AR-15, and I don't think there's a single Canadian province. I could be wrong on that, but I don't think there is. Squeeze in one more. Mike in North Van. Hi, Mike. Got to go fast, though. Hi, Mike. Yeah. So I just want to correct your caller. I don't know what army he was in, but the uh, FNC1A1 carried a 10-round magazine, and if you put one in the chamber, that's 11. And with a small toothpick, you can convert it to fully automatic. The C2 was a fully automatic one, and it came with a 20-round magazine with one in the chamber for 21 rounds. Okay, thanks. And thank you for the thank you for the call, Brian. We just got we got t- 10 seconds, Brian. Go ahead. Uh, yeah, no, the FN, you didn't need a toothpick. There was a switch on the side. I hit it many times to go from full oh. auto to semi-auto. You can't use it in the public, just like you can't use a 10-round magazine on a rifle in the in any public realm. Brian, thanks for coming on. Thank you.